Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chatterley in New York. And the future of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson could be decided in the coming hours. He faces a confidence vote later today. That's where lawmakers from his own Conservative Party will decide if they still want him as leader. It requires 180 votes to out Johnson as leader. That's a simple majority. A moment ago, Boris Johnson met with the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kallas, visited Mr Johnson in Downing Street in the last hour. And we will bring you... Uh, pictures of that engagement very shortly for now Nader Bashir oh actually we have those now here we go and this was him earlier meeting the Estonian Prime Minister ahead of that confidence vote and Nader Bashir joins us now with all the details from Downing Street great to have you with us a platinum jubilee hangover for the Prime Minister, it seems, this morning. No time to lose. I think the key point here is the numbers. It takes just 54 letters from MPs to trigger this confidence vote within the Confidence Party. It requires 180 of them now to say, look, we've had enough with him. How's it looking for the Prime Minister? Well, look, Julia, it's certainly been a busy morning. We have seen already Conservative MPs, particularly those senior uh, ministers, coming out, uh, some of them pledging their support publicly for the Prime Minister. We've heard from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. We've heard from Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. And as well, we've heard from the Deputy Prime Minister, Dominic Raab. He actually spoke to UK media earlier this morning and said he predicts a very clear mandate for the Prime Minister uh, from this vote of confidence. But as you mentioned there, it's that key figure. They need more than 50%. That's 180 plus one MPs to vote in favour uh, of the Prime Minister. And that is significant for a number of reasons. There could be perhaps some support for him coming because we're seeing two very key by-elections coming up. They may not want to distract the focus away uh, from that. We obviously saw the Conservative Party suffer some pretty significant losses in the local elections uh, in early May. There's also, of course, a diplomatic focus on the war in Ukraine. This might not be the best time uh, to look at a leadership challenge. And, of course, there's the question of who would replace Boris Johnson, even if there were a leadership challenge, there isn't a clear front runner in that instance. So that might dissuade Conservative MPs from voting against the Prime Minister. But of course, we have also heard significant opposition uh, over the last few weeks and indeed over the last few months. And that rebellion has been bubbling on the Prime Minister, uh, really coming under fire for his involvement in the Partygate scandal. That all-important Cabinet Office Sue Gray report was released just over a week ago and really gave a damning and full account uh, of the extent of the parties and social gatherings which took place both here at Downing Street and also at other government buildings. The Prime Minister photographed several times at different gatherings at a time when the country was under strict COVID regulations. So he has certainly come under fire. The question now is whether that will be enough to push Conservative backbenchers and MPs to vote against the Prime Minister and trigger a leadership challenge. We've heard from Downing Street uh, this morning. The Prime Minister has said he's welcomed uh, the opportunity to put the distraction of the past few months behind him, to draw a line under the scandal. And that is certainly what he has been saying uh, throughout these last few weeks and months during uh, the Partygate scandal. 
scandal. But the question is now whether the MPs do want to draw a line, whether they want to move forward and focus on those policy priorities, as the Prime Minister has so often said, or whether it is time for a change and for a shake-up within the Conservative Party. Julia? Yeah, you raise a great question. It's time to draw a line under this and move on. The question is, can they, even if he survives this? Bashir, we shall see in the coming hours. Thank you for joining us there from Downing Street. Now, this vote comes hot on the heels of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, marked by a weekend of extravagant celebrations that also highlighted Boris Johnson's flagging popularity. Just take a listen to this. That's the British public booing as the Prime Minister and his wife left a special Jubilee church service on Saturday this weekend. Max Foster joins us now with more on this. Max, I think a lot of people picked up on that booing and, and how popular he's or unpopular he's become. It's not just about Partygate, as Nada was suggesting there. There's a whole host of challenges that this government faces, indeed, in terms of policy to react to the cost of living crisis that people are facing. In the court of public opinion, how does the British public feel about Boris Johnson and his future? Well, you know, there, I was at St Paul's, I did hear that booing, but then I went to other events on Saturday night, for example, I was in a big crowd and Boris Johnson uh, turned up and booing again. I mean, that is the sort of the trend, as it were, and on social media, you're seeing lots of uh, negative uh, words about him as well. But the polling's negative as well for him amongst the public. And I think this is going to be a really central theme in everyone's thinking uh, as they go into that vote tonight, because, uh, you know, there will be... Uh, lots of you know, ministers who will be voting, they will lose their jobs if they lose Boris Johnson because there'll be a big shake-up, so that might make them want to vote for Boris Johnson. But there'll be others thinking ahead to the elections, and uh, Nada was uh, suggesting a couple that are coming up. But then the broader general election, if Boris Johnson is unpopular, uh, then he could cost me my seat, and that's going to be the most damaging part to this uh, for that vote tonight. But speaking to all the experts and various MPs, uh, most people do feel that Boris Johnson might scrape through tonight. Then we end up with a question of how bad will this look for him and how much will it damage his credibility? So, you know, there needs to be 180 votes to, for him to lose the entire vote and then he'd be expected to resign. But what if he, you know, gets 100 votes against him? That's very damaging to him. And uh, over the next year, uh, he'll be protected for a year. There can't be another vote of confidence. Uh, that'll be a very rocky road for the government and the Conservative Party. So either way, it's all looking pretty negative for British politics. Yes, it's going to be an interesting few hours. Max, great to have you with us. Max Poster joining us there from London. And just a reminder, that crucial vote takes place from 1 p.m. Eastern time, 6 p.m. in London. We'll have more on this story later in the programme and stay with CNN, of course, for all the latest updates throughout the day. For now. We'll move on. President Putin threatened Russian strikes on new targets if the West delivers longer-range weapons to Ukraine. He warns the deliveries will prolong the war. In general, all this fuss around additional weapon deliveries, in my opinion, has only one goal, to drag out the armed conflict for as long as possible. If they are supplied, we will draw appropriate conclusions from this and use our own weapons, of which we have enough, in order to strike at those facilities we are not targeting yet. Ukraine says the weapons could be a game-changer in the battle in the east, and this is where Moscow is now focusing its attacks. The key cities of Slavyansk and Severodonetsk are under fresh assault this morning. 
In Severodonetsk, Ukraine reports street fighting and says Russia is sparing neither men nor equipment in its fight for the city. Ben Weidman joins us now. Ben, I want to focus in on what we're seeing in the east. We heard from the Ukrainian president last week saying that Russia now controls around 15 percent of the country. Fast forward to this weekend and there was some suggestion that Ukraine was regaining territory in the east. Clearly, there's fierce fighting. What is the latest status? Well, yes, what we heard last week, Julia, was sort of by the end of the week that the Russians controlled about 80 percent of that city of Severodonetsk, which is about an hour and a half, 45 minute drive uh, to the east of here. Over the weekend, Ukrainian officials say that they re- were able to regain some of that lost ground within the city. But today, Monday, the tide seems to have turned again and the Russians are pushing the Ukrainians back. Now, what's interesting is that overnight, President Vladimir Zelensky actually came to the town of Lysychansk, which overlooks Severodonetsk, or rather he came to the area of Lysychansk. Uh, So they're clearly very concerned with the situation there. Uh, Ukrainian officials are describing how the Russians are, are pursuing their goals in that city as essentially scorched earth tactics. The problem, of course, is that there are still around 15,000 people in that city. And of course, given the intensity of the fighting at the moment, it's very difficult for any of them to get out. Julia? Just part of the challenges, of course, that the country continues to face. Ben, I also mentioned the comments from President Putin about the prospect of the provision of longer range weaponry to Ukraine and the risk that they would then tackle targets that perhaps they haven't done so before. We can question what he meant by that, whether it's in Ukraine or beyond. But if we're talking specifically about Ukraine, what might that mean? Well, the goal of these, these are called long, these are called uh, high mobility artillery mm. rocket systems. These, I've, I've read, it's like uh, artillery with the precision of a sniper scope and they fire long range uh, missiles. So that would allow the Ukrainians to sort of counterbalance the advantage the Russians have in terms of artillery. The Russians, certainly in the eastern part of the country, and I've seen this myself, are using artillery on a massive scale. They're essentially some of these towns, they're just completely flattening in order to just just drive right through. So when the West, and of course we've heard the Americans are going to provide these weapons, and we heard from the British Defense Ministry that they would also uh, provide these weapons. These would perhaps help turn the tide uh, to fight, to sort of push the Russians back uh, in the eastern part of the country. But really the problem is time is of the essence. It's very nice that the British came out and made this announcement today, but the Ukrainians want to know, that's great, Fine, thank you very much. But when are the weapons actually going to arrive, Julia? And weeks away, perhaps, from delivery. Ben Weidman, great to have you with us. Thank you. A combined show of force by the U.S. and South Korea. The two countries launching eight ballistic missiles into the sea after a North Korean missile test over the weekend. That launch was the North's third missile test since South Korea's new president took office a month ago. Paul Hancocks joins us now with all the details. Paul, it was eight for eight, I believe. It reminded me of that song, uh, whatever you can do, I can do better, or at least equal to in this case. We seem to be looking at rocket diplomacy, which ties, I guess, to a tougher stance from the new South Korean president who said, we're not going to stand for this. 
Well, this is, I mean, this is the true sense of the phrase tit for tat, isn't it, Julia? Mm. The fact that there were eight on Sunday morning local time from North Korea and then eight in response by the US and South Korea on Monday morning. Now, pointing out, of course, all of these were fired uh, into the sea off the east coast of Peninsula. So it wasn't engaging either, either side engaging each other. Uh, but what is interesting is what we saw from North Korea is the fact that Japan's defense minister actually called it unprecedented. There were eight missiles, short-range ballistic missiles, but they were all fired from four different locations, so multiple sites within about 40 minutes of each other. So that is North Korea stepping up what they are testing at this point. So that's why uh, the US and South Korea felt the need to, to have a what they call a show of force uh, in response. Now, it's not the first time that it's happened. They also did this back on May 25th, the last time that North Korea fired, uh, launched missiles. Uh, and that was just after the, the US President Joe Biden had left the region. He was here uh, in, in Seoul and also in Japan. And it has also happened with the previous administration, with the former South Korean President Moon Jae-in, uh, but certainly not as often as he was very much pro-engagement and, and pro-negotiation uh, with North Korea. But it's not unheard of that this is the kind of response that we have uh, from the US and South Korea. The JCS, the Joint Chiefs of Staff here in Seoul, saying that it is to show that, that they know exactly uh, where these launches are coming from when they come from North Korea, and they would be able uh, to, to, uh, to target that particular location should they so desire. Julia? And you make a very good point that these were all tests into water and not rockets directly fired at each other. And I just want to reiterate that point. But it also does come at a time when there are rising fears that perhaps North Korea is preparing for nuclear tests. And we've had comments even just today from the International Atomic Energy Agency also perhaps pointing in that direction too. And critically important to understand the timing. That's right, yes. Yeah. So the IAEA has, uh, has said this today, that they believe that there are indications, they've observed indications, that uh, one of the uh, entrances to one of these underground tunnels, uh, which is where the, the previous underground nuclear tests have taken place, has actually been reopened. Uh, and it could be for a possible preparation of a nuclear test. It's very similar to what we've heard from US and South Korean uh, intelligence and military agencies saying that they believe actually the preparations are completed. That's certainly what we've heard from the South Korean side. In fact, the US side was saying they believed that it could have happened while President Biden was in the region. Now, it didn't. But what, of course, this tells us at this point, according to experts, is that if the preparations are ready, it is now up to the leader, Kim Jong-un, to make a political decision when and if he wants to carry out this seventh underground nuclear test. It would be a step up from what we're seeing at the moment. Missile launches, yes, they are condemned. Yes, there is some kind of uh, sometimes physical response from the US and South Korea, as we saw in the early hours of this Monday morning. But a nuclear test is beyond that once again. In fact, the IAEA uh, said that it would be a cause for serious concern, reminding us once again it is a, a violation of, of United Nations Security Council resolutions, as are many of these ballistic missile launches as well. Uh, but certainly if there was number seven of these underground nuclear tests, the repercussions could be far greater. Julia? And the, and the messages they're being watched. I think, uh, to your earlier point, Paula Hancock, thank you for that.
Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In Bangladesh, a massive fire at a container depot has left at least 49 people dead and more than 300 injured. Officials say several firefighters have died trying to extinguish the flames, which have been burning at the facility since Saturday. The fire is mostly contained, but some of the chemical containers have exploded, complicating the operation. And close to 50 people were killed on Sunday after gunmen stormed a Catholic church in southwest Nigeria and opened fire, according to a local lawmaker. Authorities say they cannot yet confirm the total number of casualties, nor can they identify who is behind the attack. Stephanie Busari is in Lagos Forest and joins us now. Stephanie, admittedly, that's what the authorities are saying. But, but what more do we know? And what about hopes for working out who actually did this and, and finding them? So, Julia, in the past hour, we've been speaking to officials in Nigeria and they have said that they've counted more than 50 bodies. So, as we expected, the death toll in this gruesome attack will rise. Uh, we, we had initially 28 people at least, but now they're saying that's more than 50 people and that is expected to rise. Um, still no clear indication about who was behind these attacks um, in in previous attacks, which have happened in Northeast, it has similar um, kind of hallmarks with uh, large groups of armed men on motorcycles uh, storming a, a building and abducting and attacking people. So very similar. What, what is different here is that this part of the country is very, very peaceful. No previous incidences uh, such as this have happened in this very peaceful and stable part of the country. And that has led to concerns that this um, this is going to lead to more uh, violence in different parts where we haven't seen it before uh, as the election primaries and election season ramps up. Um, uh, and uh, also I've been speaking to a woman whose parents uh, sadly both died in this attack and uh, they, she, she said she has been to the morgue this morning and has seen a lot of elderly bodies and children uh, who were the, the primary victims of this uh, terrible attack, Julia. Heartbreaking. Our thoughts and at heart with all those people involved. Thanks for that, Stephanie. Great to have you with us. OK, straight ahead. The British Prime Minister's career hanging in the balance. We speak to one of the lawmakers deciding his fate. And Russia targets Ukraine's capital for the first time in weeks. We're joined by Kiev's mayor to talk about the city's fight. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's the start of a new week on Wall Street. US stocks look set to open higher for the first time in a few sessions now. What we saw last week's pullback with the tech in the lead. That's the picture that we're seeing at this moment, higher by 1.6% for the Nasdaq. Europe, as you can see on the board there, also in the green. A solid Asian session too. The Hang Seng rallying almost 3%. A relative outperformer, in fact, the Hang Seng this year compared to other major indexes. It's down some 7.5% compared to an almost 8% drop for the German DAX and a 13% drop 
for the S&P 500. Just to give you some context there, Hong Kong higher today as COVID lockdowns begin easing in Beijing. Indications that China's almost year-long crackdown on tech may be widening down too. Winding down too. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Beijing is wrapping up its national security review of the ride-hailing app Didi and other tech firms. Didi will reportedly be allowed back on Chinese app stores and will be allowed to sign up new users once again. The big question, of course, is whether more benevolent Beijing changes Didi's decision to delist from the United States and relist in Hong Kong. I'll give you one guess. China's outlook, just one uncertainty that has Wall Street raising the alarm on the global economy. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink telling Bloomberg he expects inflation to remain high for years, partly because of the disruptions in the global supply chain. And just last week, JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warned investors to brace themselves for an economic hurricane. And add in Elon Musk telling executives at Tesla that he has a, quote, super bad feeling about the economy and will reevaluate hiring at the electric car maker. Inflation, the central theme of CEOs and investor concerns. The latest U.S. inflation report is due out later this week. Now joining me to discuss all of this, and it's a lot to get through, Troy Gajewski. He's chief market strategist for FS Investments. Troy, fantastic to have you on the show. What did you make of the comment about the economic hurricane? Does that tie with, with your level of concern or at least the level of uncertainty at this moment? Well, I think if you go back to coming into this year, Julian, by the way, good to see you again. It's been too long. Um, to you know, the main focus for investors was how to manage through an environment where the economy stayed relatively strong, but you would have significant multiple compression, which would affect equity markets as well as higher bond yields because inflation was going to run hotter and the Fed would have to tighten money supply and monetary policy. Um, and then, of course, we had two really negative shocks, right? First, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And then secondarily, China's bizarre COVID zero policy, which have put additional pressure on supply chains. So that was the initial concern. Unfortunately, what you're seeing now is some concerns over global growth and U.S. growth. Uh, you know, the U.S. consumer, Julia, is very mighty, right? They have tremendous balance sheet wealth built up from the pandemic. You still have a hyper tight labor market. But basically what guys like Jamie Dimon are saying is the U.S. consumer can't keep the global economy going single handedly. You know, they need some help from CapEx and business fixed investment. They need some help from China, need some help from Europe. And so recession risk was exceptionally low coming into the year. And unfortunately, that has appreciated substantially because the U.S. consumer just can't do it single handedly. It's such a great point. And I think the the focus comes down to perhaps two different scenarios. And it's the one that we heard the BlackRock CEO talking about, which is that inflation remains sticky and it stays high for a long time and we're battling it for whatever reason. And then perhaps the other one where the Federal Reserve in particular, but obviously other central banks around the world are, are trying to tackle the pricing pressures too. They they managed to do that, but the consequences significantly tied to rates and a, and a reduced balance sheet sucking out some of the liquidity means recession risk, higher recession risk, if not recession. Is that is that the sort of two most likely scenarios that we're looking at here? Well, there still is the third, which is that the Fed can thread the needle and the consumer mm. can keep chugging along and we get business fixed investment and, and China avoids or, or evolves away from a counterproductive policy right now. Is that but unfortunately, probability that's, though? Uh, 100%, Julie, that's yeah. the problem. Is the probability <laughs> of that outcome yeah. has declined substantially and the probability of sustained inflation because now we're in a full-blown wage price spiral. And unfortunately, if the Fed had tackled this a little bit earlier, we might not be there. Um, but that probability is, is uncomfortably high. 
And then alongside that, you've now had an increased probability where the Fed really does what it takes to break inflation, but eventually the consumer can't keep it going single-handedly because financial conditions, equity multiples, interest rates, credit spreads tighten so much, you never get that follow through on business fixed investment and CapEx, which we've all been expecting. And we have a, a fairly mild recession, you know, call it later this year or early next. Uh, that's still on our base case. We're, we're trying to be very balanced in terms of, you know, these three potential scenarios. But unfortunately, as the, the needle threading scenario has diminished, the probability of recession has increased marginally. How do you handle um, or how do you invest to handle all of these kind of scenarios, whether you're an individual investor or a fund? Because one of the big challenges this year, and it plays to the point that you were just making, is that we've seen stocks, at least for indices, go down and we've seen bond yields rise. That means bonds have gone down. So your, your traditional safe haven in that environment has disappeared. Where are the safe havens, even if we're just talking about capital preservation, never mind capital return? And we'd love some returns too, please, Troy, if you can solve that problem for us as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll come through like a champ, you know, no, but uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, for, please. For, <laughs> for firms like ours, ours that have been democratizing alternatives for over a decade, you know, really pleased that there are a, a variety of alternative investments now that protect capital, can benefit from the Fed hiking because the majority of the assets are floating rate and can also mitigate downside in the event of a surprise recession, which is becoming less of a surprise, or if we stay in a higher inflationary environment. So one of the first areas would be senior secured commercial real estate debt, where you have tremendous economic resilience because you're in the senior part of the capital structure and you benefit to some extent by the Fed hiking because the majority of the assets are floating rate. So that would be you know, very stable nav, grind out a consistent return, mid to low high single digits, and not deal with all the drama. And furthermore, you know, in all three of those scenarios, you should expect a positive return. You're never gonna make 12 to 15% in a given year, but that's not what this year is all about. Mm -hmm. That's point one. Point two is if you can tolerate a little bit more mark-to-market -market volatility, and can live with some drawdown risk in the event of a recession. You know, if you look at business development corporations like FSK, they have over 12% dividend yield and traded a significant discount to NAV. So you can get a very attractive total return story, albeit with more volatility. And then lastly, Julia, in multi-strategy uh, hedge fund strategies or like our multi-strat product, volatility is actually our friend because as market dislocations go up, we can do a lot more relative value trades to take advantage of those dislocations. And so there are a handful of safe havens. We're not arguing it's gonna be easy when equities are struggling and fixed income struggling, but there are uh, ports in the storm in an environment like this to make a decent return, at least keep pace with inflation, and make sure if we get any one of those three scenarios, you at least have a fighting chance to make some return. Yes. And I think the overriding message there is stay calm and expect volatility. Um, Troy, always right. great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Troy Gajewski there, the Chief Market Strategist for FS Investments. We'll see you soon. Thank you for that. And the Market Open is up next. Stay with us. Welcome back. And a reminder of one of our top stories this hour, the future of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson hanging in the balance. The UK leader faces a vote on his leadership of the Conservative Party later today. After at least 54 lawmakers from his own party said they no longer have confidence in him. And as the vote approaches, senior members of his cabinet have been voicing their support on Twitter. The likes of Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, Chancellor Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove all saying Prime Minister Johnson should stay in the top job. 
even if he survives tonight's vote. Opposition leader Keir Starmer says the writing is on the wall. Take a listen to this. I think history tells us that this is the beginning of the end. If you look at the previous examples of no confidence votes, even when Conservative Prime Minister survived those, and he might survive it tonight, the damage is already done. I suppose you would expect nothing less from the leader of the opposition, but joining us now is Daniel Kavczynski. He's a member of parliament for Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. So great to have you on the show. Can I ask if one of you, you are one of the 54 potentially plus members of parliament that have written a letter saying they no longer have confidence in the prime minister? Well, I think, I think when uh, members of parliament do write in uh, to Sir Graham Brady, that is a confidential matter. And I certainly not, don't discuss those things uh, uh, with the media. What I would say is that I very much hope that the prime minister does win the vote uh, today. Uh, in the House of Commons. We have increasing problems facing our country, whether it's the, the situation with Ukraine, whether it's uh, high, very high inflation and trying to uh, rectify the economy after the pandemic. It's a difficult time for our country and to have a change of leadership at this time, I don't think is optimum. So your view is that he remains an asset rather than a liability both to the country and the government? Well, I'm speaking to you from London, which is a very left of centre city uh, and a city where all, all Conservative politicians have struggled over the last 20 to 30 years. Boris Johnson is the only Conservative politician who has won London and not just won it once, but won it twice. And when he f finished being mayor of London, he had a very high reputation as having done the job extremely well. The thing that matters for me is, and the reason I voted for him to be leader of the Conservative Party and ultimately Prime Minister, is his promise to deliver Brexit. Let's not forget the chaos and mayhem that we saw in this building behind me in 2019 when the previous Prime Minister could not implement the decision of the British people who voted for Brexit. That was a very, very difficult and painful time and it was Boris Johnson's leadership and courageous approach that finally managed to resolve that issue. So I think that plus the fact that he's got a majority for us, the biggest majority since 1987, of over 80 uh, majority in the House of Commons, are things that are very relevant in, in assessing uh, his continued leadership of our party. And if you are going to throw your captain overboard halfway along the journey, you need to be pretty damn sure that you've got somebody better uh, to steer the ship, ship. And I don't see anybody else who has uh, the credibility of, of doing a better job than the current incumbent. Do you think that's the view of the entire party, that at this moment, whether or not he's the best man for the job, he's the only man to continue given a lack of available alternatives that perhaps can do a better job? Well, I think in any organisation, um, you will have uh, whatever corporation or organisation you work for, uh, there will be a certain number of people who are not happy with the leadership for various reasons. And um, we now have a contest because 15% of the parliamentary party have called for a vote of confidence following the Sue Gray report. Uh, I'm not going to get into a confrontation with my colleagues who, who want to have a vote of confidence. That is their right. Um, and from an emotionally intelligent perspective, we need to try to understand each other's perspectives. The most important thing, however, though, is that when we know the result tonight, that the whole of the parliamentary party comes together again and uh, accepts the result. Because one thing I can guarantee you, divided parties do not win elections. 
uh, and uh, ahead of the next general election, which is due in two years' time, we really need to put this party gate issue to bed, uh, resolve it one way or another, and move on and focus on the things that affect people's day-to-day -day lives, whether it's the economy, whether it's jobs, or, or whether it's inflation. I think that's what the British people surely want to I mean, partigate just one of a whole host of issues that the government should be focusing on and, and perhaps not this. Daniel, how long does he survive even if he wins this confidence vote and should he be the leader of the party going into the next election in your mind? Oh, I think, uh, I think that uh, if he, uh, if he uh, let's wait and see what the result is, but I'm quite confident that three quarters of the parliamentary party will support him this evening. If that is the case, then he will survive, and he will not only survive, but lead us into the next general election campaign. The one thing which your uh, viewers ought to know is that we've been in office now for 12 years, and to be behind in the opinion polls by only 7%, some opinion polls put us just six points behind Labour, is an astonishing feat. Normally, at this time of the Parliament, uh, a governing party, if you look at the opinion polls historically, will be 10, 15 points behind. So I don't think the British people are convinced by the opposition, uh, by Sir Keir Starmer, and I think there is everything to play for uh, at the next general election in 2024, and I very much hope it's under the leadership of Boris Johnson. Daniel, that doesn't half feel like a consolation prize. Quite frankly, one would rather be ahead than not quite so far behind as, um, as perhaps previous governments. Um, we can debate that point again. Um, very quickly, who's the best backup should the Prime Minister lose this vote, in your mind? Who, who is the best backup to well, the current Prime Minister? That's a, that, that's a speculation, of course. And I think, I mean, of I course. hope you will allow me just to focus on the on the vote in hand today before making any further speculations. I do have somebody in mind who would be a potential uh, credible alternative, but at the moment the focus is making sure that we vote in the, in the elections today and understand what the magnitude of the vote is. If, as I predict, three quarters of the parliamentary party support the Prime Minister, then I think he will be safe uh, the rules say that there is no contest allowed, permissible, for another 12 months, by which stage we are moving into the domain of uh, getting ever closer to the next general election. Uh, so the, the, tonight's vote is absolutely crucial. Crucial for the Conservative Party, crucial for the country. And sir, I would ask you what that name is, but I know exactly what you're going to say to me, in which case I won't bother asking. We'll focus on the matter at hand. Thank you for joining us and thank you for your time. I know it's a busy day. Thank, thank you very British much. Member of Parliament for the Conservative Party there. Thank you, sir. All right, up next, Russia's first strikes on Kyiv in weeks rattle Ukraine's capital. We speak to the city's mayor. Ukraine says President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the war town east of his country as the battle for the Donbass rages. On Sunday, President Zelensky reportedly visited frontline troops near the critical city of Severodonetsk. That visit comes as Ukraine says Russia is putting its full military might into the battle for the east. On Sunday, military officials reported Russian troops had suffered losses in the Donetsk region amid a push towards the key city of Slavyansk. In Severodonetsk, Ukraine reports the fiercest battles, quote, and street fighting after it retook half the city over the weekend. 
Sunday also saw the first Russian strikes on Kyiv in weeks. Ukraine says five missiles were launched at the capital. One military target and one civilian target were reportedly hit. Joining us now is Vitaly Klitschko. He's the mayor of Kyiv. Mayor Klitschko, good to have you on the show. We appreciate your time. I want to ask you about the missile strikes that we saw on Kyiv over the weekend. The, the Russians said they were targeting and destroyed foreign-provided tanks. Obviously, the Ukrainian forces have said it was a train repair operation. Can you tell us what happened? Uh, good afternoon. Uh, in Kyiv we have already afternoon. Uh, actually, uh, just yesterday we have uh, uh, rockets attack. It's five, uh, six rockets landed and destroyed the buildings. And uh, uh, the Russians told this was military object. It's uh, totally a liar, and uh, it's not true. Uh, it's uh, saints God. Uh, nobody died, but a couple of people was injured. Uh, was in uh, in <clears throat> spent right now the time in in hospital. Uh, it was uh, civilian infrastructure objects, and uh, they doesn't have uh, don't have connection to uh, military forces. And uh, like always, the Russians uh, explain the liar uh, regarding this special operation. So just to be clear, no tanks that were provided by Eastern European nations were destroyed in this attack? Uh, in Kiev, it doesn't have a tanks. It's, uh, it was destroyed civilian buildings. I got it. You've been honest and you've said to people, you understand their desire to come back to Kiev, but they do so at their own risk because the situation still isn't stable. And this rocket attack I think proves that. What impact does it have on people's mentality, people's fears? Kyiv, capital of Ukraine, <clears throat> was the target and still the target of Russians. And uh, the main priority to occupy the capital of Ukraine all, always uh, was the goal of uh, Russian uh, Federation of Mr. Putin. Uh, and uh, right now, the thanks to Ukrainian military forces, to Ukrainian warriors, soldiers, who actually defend our city and Russians right now concentrate uh, his forces uh, to the east of Ukraine, but uh, uh, Kyiv uh, still uh, the target. We see the rockets attack. Uh, actually, uh, before the war, its population of our city was uh, 3.6 million people. Uh, 3.6 million uh, citizens uh, in during the war is our population reduced to 1 million because uh, women's children left the city and slowly right now uh, when the Russians uh, soldier go away from from uh, capital of Ukraine the people coming back coming back to homes right now the population Kyiv around 2.5 million uh, citizens and uh, people come and come back and uh, right right now actually if we can uh, call that normal life uh, 
the cafe is open, some uh, small business starting to work there. Uh, right now, beginning of the summer, the people coming back to hometown. But uh, every day we listen the warning regarding uh, reckless attack and everyone have to go to the bunkers uh, a couple of times a day we listen the alarm yeah the fear remains one of the other things that i think people need to understand is uh, something that the uh, the emergency services the ukrainian emergency services estimate which is that half the country now has unexploded ordnance so that remains a risk even for people returning wherever they are in the country. And I know you and your brother run a foundation that was created to give sporting access to, to young people. And now you've switched and you're providing education on this kind of unexploded ordinance, on critical first aid if people are caught in an attack and, and trying to make instant decisions to save lives. Mayor Klitschko, even just saying it is, is heartbreaking to me that that's what children are now learning. Uh, this situation in have a uh, huge uh, and long impact on uh, the citizens of our city. It's one of the reasons why I tell to everyone, please not so fast coming back, because the north of east of our city, the woods and green zone was uh, totally with the mines and unexploded stuff. And we have a couple of examples, a uh, couple of cases not examples, sorry, cases uh, when a uh, civilian already died. Uh, and uh, that's why the, this zone is uh, forbidden to visiting the green zone. It's actually the people um, uh, make a barbecue to the green zone. It's if a good, a good weather to spend uh, in weekend. But right now we close uh, all green zone because it's very dangerous. Yes, of course, uh, we have uh, to do it a lot. Anti-mine um, program. Uh, actually, we need the experts to do that uh, but right now in stealing the war it's uh, difficult to do it because we all, everybody concentrate to support the Ukrainian army and to defend our country in the east of and east of south of Ukraine uh, but anyway uh, this is one of the reasons why I told to everyone please if you come to, to the Kiev it's your personal risk the own risk uh following the rules for please following the rules we actually every day uh, announced what is allowed to doing what is not mayor klitschko you and i were both in davos uh, just over a week ago and one of the discussions taking place there was the concern that the rising food prices the rising energy prices the complications of this war might force some countries' leaders around the world to, to take a look at the situation in Ukraine and decide to perhaps persuade or say to the Ukrainian government, we need to compromise here. For, for the good of the world, there needs to be some kind of compromise and the war must come to an end. And I saw the comments from President Macron at the weekend where he said, President Putin shouldn't be humiliated in the negotiations that are taking place. Mayor, what, what do you make first of, of President Macron's comments and, and some of those conversations that perhaps could force a compromise? 
uh, if we listen about the words the Russians tell, uh, told us, let's find the compromise, where, let's find solution. I don't know what they talk about. Uh, what we talk about, which compromise to give up to Russians some big part of territory of Ukraine, uh, it's compromise or is solutions in some uh, politician, for example, as Macron, I was really, as Ukrainian citizens, I was uh, very uh, disappointed, upset uh, from uh, his messages. It's actually uh, Ukrainians attack, they kill uh, our citizens. The big part of Ukraine was occupied and uh, the, the Russian Federation not accept Ukraine as country and uh, ask Ukrainian as nationality. As, uh, is actually... Uh, uh, the people have to understand we defend our country we defend our future we defend our families and our children and also we defend the same value and principles what have European country what ha which have uh, democratic countries we fighting fighting for you for every one of you because the principles and values is the main priority right now we uh, in in the modern world and um, uh, we can't uh, accept some compromise i don't know what we have to talk about uh, mm. we ready to talk about compromise or, or solution if the last russian soldier left our country and after that it's time to talk right now uh, it's difficult difficult to talk if uh, every day killed uh, ukrainian and a uh, big part of ukrainian country was occupied i think the message uh, there, sir, is no surrender yeah you're right mayor great to chat to you thank you for your time and we'll speak again soon, I hope. The Mayor of Kiev there. So thank you. A warm welcome back and a better tone on Wall Street this Monday, though it is early hours. Tech stocks in the lead in early trade after last week's 1% Nasdaq fall. Lots of challenges for investors to overcome this week, including Friday's all-important read on US consumer price inflation. Take a look at shares of Twitter in the meantime, lower in early trade as Elon Musk accuses the company of withholding data on bots. Musk is now saying he may withdraw his takeover bid. One to watch. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages shortly. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next and I'll be back tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.